Amen. Lord, we thank you that our sin has been atoned for, not because of our good works, but because of your great grace. Lord, what the world, what the enemy meant for evil, we know was ultimately your plan for our good, that we might have an intimate relationship with the Father through the shed blood of the Son. Lord, we pray as we go to the Word right now that you would be our teacher. Pray, Lord, that our hearts would be soft to receive from you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts 23. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you one. And if you need it, please take it home. It's our gift to you. If you don't have one at home or you like that one better, please help yourself. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by Word of God. So read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? We need to be in God's Word on a consistent basis. All right, Acts 23. So this morning, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. By the way, I want to encourage you, uh, pray about coming on Wednesday nights. I know we're going through numbers. Don't let that scare you. It's a great book, I promise, all right? The people that are coming in are being blessed, and it really is uh, just such an a awesome picture of Christ as they wander through the wilderness and our need for Him. But as we come to Acts 23, we know that as we've been looking at Acts, the book of Acts could be called the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen that it's so key that the Holy Spirit be active in the lives of believers for the lives to have impact on the world around them. We saw Peter in the first half trying to impact the world in his flesh prior to to Pentecost. We saw him trying to do that and we saw that he was lopping off ears and he was napping when he should have been praying and his life was a disaster, denying the Savior. But when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he was used mightily. And he went from a man who was afraid of a little girl around a fire to a man who spoke with boldness and saw 3,000 souls added in a single day. The second half of the book, we've been looking at the life of Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul. And as we know, he began as a man who was zealous for the law and for rules and for rituals. Maybe you've got a background where you grew up, you know, a real religious person who was zealous for your rules, but you did not understand what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, then you can relate to Paul, because he was a zealous man, but he was zealous for a lie. He even persecuted Christians. He held the coats while they stoned Stephen. As we've been watching through the last few chapters, we've seen that that while God had a specific plan for him, Paul initially didn't understand. Remember that when he got saved, he was blinded. He had to be knocked off his high horse. And remember that when he was blinded, he was brought to the end of himself, and he confessed Jesus as Lord, but he told him that his ministry was to the Gentiles. But what did Paul do immediately as he was gained his sight and had been taught? He went straight to the Jews, and they tried to kill him. So he went to some more Jews, and they tried to kill him, right? And finally Paul realized, Lord, I I understand my calling. He went to the Gentiles. We saw three missionary journeys where he planted churches all over the then known world. It was used mildly by God, but there was still this burden in his heart that would not go away. A burden for his people. A passion to see his own brethren come to know Christ. He even said in Romans 9 that he would count himself accursed if it could mean their salvation. Lord, I'll take their penalty. He had such a burden for them. I'll tell you, may we have that burden for Santa Cruz County. Amen? May we have the burden for Santa Cruz County that Paul had for the Jews. He said, if, it doesn't matter. If it, if it costs me my life to get the gospel to them, it's worth it. And then finally, he, the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and it was time for him to go to Jerusalem. If you'll remember, then all, everybody began to warn him, Paul, if you go, it's going to be in trouble. You're going to get there, you're going you're to be beaten, Paul, don't go. Remember Agabus the prophet took his belt and he bound himself and said, whoever this belt belongs to, they're going to be bound also. But then we saw Paul's heart in a great verse. And if you haven't underlined this in your Bible, I would encourage you to do so. 
And the, the verse is Acts 20, 24. And what it says there is that none of these things move me, nor do I count my life near to myself. And he says, nothing's going to move me. Nothing's going to transform my life. I've got a passion for God, so that I might finish my race with joy in the ministry of which I received from the Lord Jesus to finish the gospel of grace. Paul's heart had one focus. I want to see people come to know Christ. And I have a special burden for my own people. And you might sit there and say, well, what has that got to do with me? Maybe you've got a burden for your own family. How many of the unsaved family members? Raise your hand. Okay? Isn't that a burden on your heart? You may see people all around you getting saved, and that's awesome, and praise God for that, but we still have that burden. And that's how Paul was. I want to go back and make sure my people hear the truth, and whatever it takes. And when the warnings came, he said, none of these things move me. It's all right. God told me I can go. I've been wanting to go for all these years. It's finally my opportunity. Well, then we saw him finally arrive in Jerusalem. And guess what? All the prophecy was true, wasn't it? He got to Jerusalem. How was he received? They throw a parade for him? Excited to see Paul? All right, Paul, you're here. That's great. All right. No, that's not what happened. Instead, every one of those prophecies came true, and immediately ridicule came. And immediately they began to to beat him, and they grabbed him, and they drug him away. And we saw how God, by His divine leading, rescued him over and over again. The Asian Jews stirred up the crowd. They laid hands on him. They falsely accused him. And finally, the Romans had to come in and rescue him. Then last week, we saw a message called, A Message Worth Dying For. And that was Paul's heart. Paul said, you know what? I'm going to share Jesus, and if I die, it's okay. He would later say, my favorite verse in the Bible, Philippians 1.21, my life's verse, which says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, you know, my life is about Christ, and when I die, it's only going to get better. Do you understand, if you're a Christian this morning, the worst thing that the world can do to you is the best thing that could happen to you? Amen? You can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? Somebody comes up and blows you, hey, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I'm going to close my eyes here, I'm going to open them up in glory, it's only going to get better. We have, there's no fear for those in Christ Jesus because our eyes are focused there. That was Paul. Paul said, hey, I get to go minister to my brethren, it's about time, and if they get after me, it's okay, because you're in control, Lord, and you're the one that's sending me, and I'm looking forward to it. And what did he share? Remember, I talked about this last week. What did he share? Here's this guy who was an Old Testament uh, theologian, who was a Pharisee who knew the Old Testament as good or better than anybody on the planet. He was a a man of doctrine and theology from the Old Testament. But when he had a chance to minister to the Jews, he didn't start talking to them about doctrine and theology, though though those things are important. What did he do? He shared his what? His testimony. He got up and said, this is who I was, then I met Jesus, and this is who I am now. Can we follow Paul's pattern? Isn't that what the Lord would have us to do? So often we want to get in a deep theological debate, and again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I believe the place we ought to start with everyone is just tell them, let me tell you about Jesus and what He did in my life. Nobody can dispute that. This is who I was, and this is who I am, and it's all changed because of Jesus Christ. We know that that He had to be humbled first, because Paul was a man of great pride. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. He was headed to Damascus. What was he going to do when he got there? He was going to arrest some Christians. He's on horseback. Man, we're going to go in there and tear it up. And when he got halfway there, he got knocked off his high horse. And he comes into Damascus now blind, being led by the hand. little different entrance than he thought he was going to have into Damascus, right? But God was bringing Paul to the end of himself because without conviction, there can be no conversion. Until we see that we're sinners, we'll see no need for a Savior. And Paul needed to realize You're not so holy, and you're not perfect, and you are in desperate need of the Lord. 
So that brings us to the chapter tonight, or this morning, tonight. Help me. All right. So what happened was, we see here that Paul has now come, and what happened last week at the, at the middle of this message, he said one word that triggered everybody. Who remembers what it was? What did he say? Gentiles. Remember that? He gets up, they're grabbing him, and they're dragging him away. The, the commander's saving him. The crowd's pressing in. They want to kill him. And Paul says to the commander, can I talk to these guys for a while? Now, if a couple thousand people are trying to kill me, I'm thinking a conversation is probably not what I'm looking for. But Paul, again, so focused on eternity, said, hey, look, I got all these guys in one place. They all want to kill me, but, but you know what? What an opportunity. And he raised his hand and began to speak to them, and he shared his testimony. And he talked about Jesus, and they listened. But as soon as he said, Gentiles, what did they do? They wanted to kill him. They started tearing their clothes and throwing ashes on their head, and they just wanted to kill him. So he's been drug away yet one more time. And now we see that him being grabbed and drug away is yet another divine appointment. That nothing happens by chance in the kingdom of God. He's going to be drug away, but now he's going to be brought before the Sanhedrin. We're going to see that this morning. And the title of the message this morning is A Bound Evangelist. Because he's bound under arrest for the gospel, but he's been bound by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel, and he's bound by his love for his people. He's bound. He's got a message worth dying for. It's a message we should be willing to live for. And he's bound. He says, hey, whatever it takes, I'm bound. It's God's calling on my life. It's going to be another divine appointment. We're indestructible until God's through with us. So if you take notes, the four things we're going to look at is we're going to see Paul's divine appointment before the Jewish council. We're going to see Paul being encouraged in the midst of difficulty by the Lord himself. We're going to see the plot to kill Paul. And then finally, we're going to see Paul being sent out in God's divine protection over those who are walking with him. So let's begin in verse 1 of Acts 23, looking at the bound evangelist, Paul's divine appointment before the Jewish council. Now back in verse 30 of the previous chapter, it says, The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So this is speaking of the Roman commander. He grabs Paul, wants to say, you know, the people are stirred up. They're tearing their clothes and throwing ashes on their heads. He's trying to understand why they're after him. He had told them he was a Roman, so they couldn't beat him. And they said, well, we can't find out by scourging him because we know he's a Roman citizen, so we better take him before the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin or the Jewish council and let them question him. It's their problem. Let's take him to him. Verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Man, this is an odd way to start this conversation with these guys. Let me, first of all, let's understand who this council is. This council was a 71-member Sanhedrin, also known, you know, the, the Jewish council, also known as the, the Supreme Court of the day, in a sense, for the Jews. There were 70 members, and the high priest was over them all. So Paul comes in now. More than likely, Paul was a member of this group before he got saved, and we'll see why in just a second here. And he's coming back after many years, and he walks in, he begins to look earnestly at them all. He may have even been looking for some familiar faces in the crowd. He may have been looking to say, I've been gone for many years, and you know what, guys? I've come back with a great message. I, want, you know, I can't wait to share this with you. Now again, these people knew what Paul had been doing. They were probably, at least some of them, in the crowd that was screaming for him to be killed. And now they've brought him in and they have an opportunity, he has an opportunity by divine appointment to minister to them. 
Two riots and a near scourging since his arrival in Jerusalem brought him before the Sanhedrin. This was a divine appointment. Paul could have been bummed out and said, you know, Lord, the crowd didn't listen. You know, Lord, they almost want, they wanted to beat me. They've been putting me in chains. Instead, he just said, another opportunity. Remember that Paul was chained up in prison? And when Paul was chained up in prison, you know what he thought? Captive audience, right? Because he was chained to soldiers. He's like, dude, I got you for 12 hours, man. I'm going to share the whole Bible with you before we're done. You're going to totally, fully understand. And when they changed shifts, he went, oh, praise the Lord. And you know, we would be bummed out, man. I'm chained up to this guy. He's going, hey, there's an opportunity for the gospel. He's being beaten. He's like, all right, this is, going to, this is going to work out in something really good. I know. Lord, you're in control. Hey, when we go through trials, know it's an opportunity for the gospel. Amen? The world's watching you when you go through difficulty. And when you go through difficulty, it's an opportunity for you to point to God's glory and His grace and what He's done in your own life and what He's doing in your own life. And Paul, here he is, being brought before these guys. And he looks out earnestly at them and he says to them, men and brethren. Now, they were typically called fathers by the Jews. And this is why uh, many people, including myself, believe he must have been a member because he called them brethren, men and brethren. Hey, guys, guys, how you been? You know, can you just see Paul? Looking earnestly at him, guys, how you been, right? They're, they're over there gnashing their teeth waiting to get a hold of him. And Paul's walking in like, divine appointment, all right, right? I had a couple thousand riotous people, now I got 71 of the, the Supreme Court, including the high, oh, this is going to be good. I get to preach Jesus again, this is going to be great, right? We're going to find out that they're not going to receive him too well. And Paul looked earnestly at these guys, and Paul had supernatural burden for the Jews, and no doubt he had a burden for these guys who he had once served with. And then he says to them, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, didn't he just share with us his testimony? What did he say in his testimony? What did he do to the Christians? He was persecuting him, wasn't he? He was trying to kill him. But now he says, I stand here before God in all good conscience. How is that possible? How does he go from sharing a testimony that he was out trying to kill Christians and now say, I stand before God in all good conscience? What happened to Paul? What happened to him? He got saved. Amen? Do you know that when you're born again, you're a new creation in Christ, that old things have passed away and all things have become new? Do you know that the sin that's behind you, that the devil wants to remind you of, right? You ever seen that bumper sticker that says, next time Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future, right? Okay? But the reality is there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, look, I've been washed in the blood, as we saw in the previous chapter. At the end of his testimony, he said, I was washed in the blood, I'm a new creation in Christ, I've been born again, and I can stand here in all good conscience before you guys. I've sinned in the past, but I'm a new creation in Him. And you know what? I want to encourage you. Sometimes we think, man, I've just done so much bad stuff. You know what? Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Our God is a forgiving God and a gracious God, and He loves you more than you'll ever understand. So much He'd rather die than live without you. And he stands before these guys who are gnashing their teeth at him. And I, I love it because what does Paul put the focus? He says, it's not where I stand before you guys that matter, matters, it's where I stand before him that matters. It's not what you guys think, it's what God says, right? He doesn't say, I stand here before good conscience before all the Jews. He doesn't say that, does he? I stand here before all you guys, before all my friends. I'm real popular with the world. He doesn't say that. He's not popular at all. Pretty much everybody that's got within an arm's reach of him outside of the Roman commander that God has there to save him wants to kill him. But he says, I stand in good conscience before God and that's all that matters. You know why we struggle in our walks, you guys? I just share my heart with you. Here's the number one reason I believe we struggle. We're more worried about what men think than what God thinks. 
Is that true sometimes? Amen? We're more worried about what men say and how men look at it. We buy our clothes and drive our cars and everything we do so often trying to impress people. And we're worried about what people think, and that's why we miss out on God's highest. And Paul said, you know, I don't care what men think. I stand before God in good conscience before Him, and that's what matters in my life. How then could he say, it's because of God's grace? I love it. Go and wash yourself. Call on the name of the Lord, Paul, and that's what he had done. And now he was a new creation in him. Sins washed away, a good and clear conscience. Peace with God only possible through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes I have people come up to me and say, Pastor Dave, you're a little radical on that Jesus only thing. Well, guess what? I'm only going to turn that heat up a little bit more. Amen? Because it's Jesus only. Amen? Well, what about all the Buddha? Well, they need Jesus. And Buddha needed Jesus, amen? And he's a dead man, dead. We can dig up his bones. And our, you know, Muhammad is dead. And all these other gods that people serve, it's Jesus only. And only through him can we have peace. And K-N-O, know Jesus, no peace. And if you know Jesus, you'll know peace, amen? And that was Paul. And he says, I stand with good conscience before God. And we've talked about our conscience before, and I want to move on, but I just want to say this. A conscience is... Our conscience today as Christians is what? Who is it? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comforts us. He convicts us, right? When we're sinning, He convicts us. He comforts us during times of difficulty. And He confirms truth. He bears witness with us when we're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. What has Paul done to deserve a smack in the mouth? He walked in and said, I stand before God in all good conscience. And the high priest sends someone down to, to smack, smack him. Now the word strike here is a wicked, vicious blow. This is not a slap. Okay? It's the same word that's used in, when talking about Jesus being beaten. And he was he, he's just standing there. And he comes down and the high priest sends someone down to smack him in the face. Now let's talk about this guy, Ananias. The high priest, Ananias. He was supposed to serve God's people. He was supposed to represent God to men and men to God. Wasn't that the high priest's job? The high priest was supposed to be a picture of whom? Of Jesus, right? He was the one that interceded. He was the only one that could go in the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, which is what Jesus did on the cross. He was the, the one that would go to the people and represent God to the people, and he represented the people to God. And this guy, all he cared about was money. He was extremely corrupt. What he did was he set up a big scam in the temple where when people would come in with their animals to be sacrificed, he would command his priest to say, tell them that all their animals are flawed. And then direct them over and we'll have our own animals that are pre-approved as not being flawed and we'll charge them a huge amount of money and then we'll just make out like bandits. That was Ananias. Great high priest, right? Aren't you glad that our great high priest is Jesus Christ and no man who could totally blow it for us? Amen. Aren't you glad that the price has been paid? And so we see here that that's the kind of guy Ananias was. One of the cruelest and most corrupt high priests ever. And again, it was all about him. He was a millionaire by the world's standards. And he commanded him to be struck. And understand, that was an illegal act. You had to try a guy and have a reason to strike him. But he did it outside of the law. Again, a man who did not know God. A man who didn't care about what God thought. A man who took his position and his authority for granted and used it to abuse others. So we see that Paul's been beaten by the mob, they're going after him, and now look what happens. He goes in and the high priest just sends someone down to smack him. Now, if you've ever wondered if Paul's a human being like us, you know, sometimes you see Paul doing stuff and you're like, dude, that guy, 
he's just not even right. I mean, how do you go outside of Lystra and get stoned to death and get right back up and go back into the city again? Man, that, dude, you're out of control. But watch this. I want you to see that Paul, like us, can blow it. And I'm not so sure he totally blows it, but we see his human side here. Watch what he does. Look at verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. How do you feel about it, Paul? What are your thoughts about this guy smacking you in the mouth? What do you think, right? God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you commend me to be struck contrary to the law? You're supposed to be the guy overseeing the law, and you're having someone hit me outside of the law? God's going to strike you down, you whitewashed wall. Man. Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know what he's calling Ananias? Hypocrite. From the outside, you look great. You know, can't we put on the Christian face for people? Right? We can all fool some people some of the time, right? We can pretend to be really, you know, but... Those who hang out with us all the time find out who we really are. And these guys, he put on the face and put on the Christian, you know, not the Christian robe, but the Jewish robe, right? He had the robes on and walking around and everybody wanted to, you know, kiss his ring and bow to him and he, well, he thought that was pretty sweet. But we see that Paul knows his heart and God knows his heart and says, man, you're a hypocrite. Now, Paul spoke the truth, you're a hypocrite, but he spoke it in anger. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. Amen? You respond in anger to somebody, does that usually help the situation or make it worse? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably going to turn things up a notch, right? Well, Paul just turns and just blasts the guy. And what he says is accurate. God will strike you. But you know what? Something similar happened to Jesus, didn't it? Didn't they strike Jesus? Same word. Not by chance. They struck Jesus. And how did Jesus respond when they struck him? All he did was he turned and, and, and calmly reacted by asking a question. All he said was, if I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Is that a little different than Paul's response? You whitewash, you know. God's going to strike you down, man, right? Paul's still got a lot of growing to do, just like we all do, amen? And we see that Paul responds in anger, and we should not respond in anger. We should respond in love, verse 4 and 5. And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. They reviled him. Those standing by were, were appalled that he would speak this way to the high priest, and Paul's reaction due in part to the fact that he didn't know he was the high priest. Now, why didn't he know he was the high priest? Some people think, well, Paul, you know, they talk about Paul having a thorn in his flesh after him being blind, and some people believe it was his eyesight. Maybe he couldn't see very well. Other people believe that you know, he, he didn't recognize him because it was a different guy than it was before. Let me tell you why I believe he didn't know he was a high priest. Because he wasn't acting like a high priest. Amen? Is that a high priestly thing to do? Just haul off and have a guy smack who just walked in the door? That's not a real high priestly thing to do. And you know, here's the thing. A lot of people don't recognize us as Christians because we don't act like it. Amen? If you tell someone you're a Christian and they're shocked, that's not good. <laughs> right? If they, oh, you? Oh, right, that's not good, right? And that's what happened here with Ananias. You know, he was supposed to be a representative of Christ, or of, of God the Father in his case, right? And he's supposed to represent God to the people, and in our case, we're supposed to represent Christ to the world. 
And you know what? We're the only Jesus some people are ever going to see, you guys. You might be the only Christian in your workplace. You might be the only Christian in your neighborhood. And God wants to use you to reflect, you know, be the moon, right? Reflect the sun. You know, what does the moon do? It reflects the S-U-N. And as Christians, what should we do? Reflect the S-O-N. You know, we're to be the moon reflecting the sun. And that's what God's called us to do. And if we start living like the world and responding in anger and acting like Ananias, people are not going to recognize that we've been born again and we've been transformed by the Lord. Again, he was not acting like the high priest, but Paul knew he was not to speak evil of those in authority over him. Did this guy do something wrong? Yes. Should Paul, was Paul right in a sense in what he said that he was a hypocrite? Yeah. But should he be responded the way he did? No. Remember David and Saul? What was Saul doing to David? Throwing spears at him. What did Saul do? Pick up the spear and throw it back, right? No. He said, Lord, that's, he's in your hands. You, will put him, you raised him up, you'll set him down. You know what? Don't try to overpower people at work. Don't try to over... Let God have it, amen? You just love the Lord, serve Him, be a Christ-like example, and it'll be an opportunity for you to minister to the world around you. Verse 6, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Ananias, what he had done was illegal, and Paul looked around and realized that half of the crowd was Sadducees and half of the crowd was Pharisees, and he knew that ultimately the reason he could stand before them with a good conscience before God was because of the resurrection. He knew the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees didn't. And the Sadducees were sad you see because they did not believe in the resurrection. Why would you even bother? What's the point? I don't get it. If you didn't believe there was heaven at the end, why bo- I don't understand this program. We don't believe in miracles. We don't, we're, why are you, rel- I don't understand. Who are you serving? There's no, there's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no God. There's no miracles. There's no resurrection. Let me just tell you something right now. If there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. Amen? If we don't have the resurrection of Christ, we are hopeless indeed. We have no promise of eternal life. We're without hope. And I'll, I want to tell you something. It's being attacked in churches today. People are denying the resurrection. They're denying the virgin birth. They're denying the deity and the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And we're, you know, we've got to get back to the truth of God's Word. God's Word is perfect. Jesus Christ is perfect. He is God. He was born of a virgin. He died on the cross, and the three days later, He rose from the dead. He's a risen and living Savior, and He's coming back. Amen? And we should rejoice in that, and it should never be watered down. And he gets up there and says, it's the resurrection. And the Pharisees start getting whipped up because they believe in in a resurrection, not the resurrection of Christ, but they believe people can be resurrected. And the Sadducees don't, and these guys turn and start going after each other. Look at verse 7 and 8. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Now, the interesting part to me is, how do these guys ever spend any time together anyway? I don't get it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know what united the Pharisees and the Sadducees? You know what put them on the same side? What was it? Jesus and their hatred for Him. These guys were on opposite ends of the extreme, right? And as soon as Jesus came along, they all of a sudden came together and said, we've got to kill that guy. He's threatening our way of life. He's going to take away our authority. And they didn't want that. And these guys from opposite opposite extremes come together to attack Christ. And the world's doing the same thing today. 
You'll see people have nothing in common that will come together to attack our Savior or to attack Christianity. Verse 9. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees partly arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So the Pharisees, so intense with this debate that they even began to stick up for Paul, a guy who they knew was an outspoken Christian. But there was, their debate was so heavy with the Sadducees. Again, the resurrection is still in contention today. No resurrection, no forgiveness, no salvation, no reason to follow Christ. Verse 10. Now when they arose, a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. How many times is this guy gonna, life going to have to be saved? It's like, a, you know, like every chapter has got a verse about Paul's life getting saved one more time. Right? We're indestructible until God's through with us. Amen? We're not going to die one second before or one second after God says so. Now, don't go play on the freeway or God might be done with you, all right? But here's the reality. If we're walking in the center of God's will, it's all in His hands and we can trust Him. And, and it, He's faithful God. But we see the commander was held responsible for Paul's safety. And he said, man, I better get a hold of that guy because if Paul was killed, it could cost him his own life. And I want you to see here too that whenever we're bold, persecution's going to follow. He goes in and he's bold for the Lord and persecution follows. And when you're bold, persecution will follow. So number one was the divine appointment for the Jewish council. Again, an opportunity to share the gospel. Number two, watch what happens in the middle of the trial. And this should be a great encouragement to all of us. Verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him. Man, I like that. In my Bible, I underlined the Lord stood by him. You know, the Bible says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And aren't you glad? He stands by you in the midst of the storm. He never is too far away. Abba Father means Daddy, and Daddy's never far away. Amen? You can crawl up into His lap. He loves you. His eyes are always on you. And Paul, no doubt, he is a man, can be overwhelmed. Man, I went to the crowd. They wanted to kill me. I knew you sent me here, Lord, but I I didn't even get through the whole gospel. As soon as I said Gentiles, they grabbed me. I go into the Sanhedrin, I just start to talk, and a guy smacks me in the mouth. Then I find out it's the high priest. I blew with that guy. Now they're all trying to kill me again. I'm getting dragged away again. Lord. And that's when the Lord shows up. And look what he says to him. Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have tested for, testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. He's saying, Paul, you know what? You did testify of me here. You've been obedient to testify of me. But you, we might say, well, do we see anybody getting saved? Anybody getting saved so far? Nobody. Does that mean they didn't later? They might have. God's word doesn't return void. But here's the thing, guys. It's not our job to save anybody. That's God's job. But we're called to be faithful to share the truth. And if you share the truth with ten people and none of them get saved, or you share the truth with ten people and they all get saved, I believe your reward is equal in heaven because you've been faithful and obedient to share your faith, and the rest of it's up to the Lord. Some water, some plant, but God brings the increase. Amen? And so we just need to be faithful to share our faith and let God do it. Sometimes it can get frustrating. Man, I've been sharing my faith at work. I've been sharing with people, and they're just not hearing me. Keep it up. That's God's job to save them, not yours. You keep sharing your faith. And in the midst of the trial, the Lord is with him. Isn't that a theme throughout the Bible? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You guys have been here any length of time. You know it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, right? These guys, everybody, everybody bow when the horn plays. Everybody bows, and they're just standing there. We're not bowing to no other God. We're not doing it. And we know King Nebuchadnezzar, right? Fired up. 
Oh, man, the fire heated up, seven, heated up seven times hotter. I think it's one of the funniest things in the Bible. How hot does fire need to be to burn you? I don't understand. But heat it up, right? And he's just, ah. And they're like, you know what? If you throw us in, God will deliver us. And if not, it's okay. We're serving him anyway. And when they threw him in the fire, what happened? You know, who's the God that will deliver you out of my hands? He looks into the fire, and what does he see? Who's in the fire with him? Jesus. And I love the fact that he had to call him out of the fire. Come out, come out, you servants of the Most High God. They were hanging in the fire. This is good. Lord's here. Because it's better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without him. Amen? They said, hey, we're in the trial. Lord's with us. This is good right here. It's nice and warm. Hanging out with the Lord. This is great, right? And I love it because what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He went from, who's the God that will deliver you out of my hands? To, come out, come out, you servants of the Most High God. That happened because they were willing to go through the fire. And you know, when we go through the fire... It's going to be an opportunity for people to see Jesus. Just like Nebuchadnezzar saw him, they'll see Jesus with us in the fire. And Paul so far, in Acts 18, he was discouraged in Corinth, and Jesus appeared and encouraged him to stay. In Jerusalem, his life was in danger. Jesus showed up and told him what to do. Later in Acts 27, he's going to be in the midst of the storm, and the Lord's going to show up. In 2 Timothy, during his trial in Rome, the Lord once again encouraged him. But here's why. Acts Matthew 28 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then at the end of the verse he says, And lo, I will be with you always. You go out and you be faithful, God is with you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? I will never leave you nor forsake you. You plus God is the majority. God's on your side, you win. Right? Game over. And so Paul needed to be encouraged, just like you and I need to be. Be of good cheer, Paul, I'm not through with you. You've testified before these guys, I'm still going to use you in a mighty way. He just promised him. Remember when he promised the apostles, we're going to the other side of the lake? Remember that? And the storm kicked up, and they all started to panic? Now he's promising Paul, Paul, we're going to Rome. So don't worry. You're not, I'm not done with you yet. You're going to catch some more flack here in Jerusalem, but I'm not done with you. You're going to go to Rome. And he could have peace, and we'll see that he does. Verse 12, the plot to kill Paul. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Nor was there, now there was more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. Now, we've got a conflict here. Jesus said, you're going to Rome. And these guys said, we're not eating until we kill this guy. Hope you guys had a big breakfast. Because I think I know who's right on this program. Amen? They're all getting together saying, we're not eating until he's dead. The Lord said, yeah, well, you're going to go through Jerusalem and you're going to make it to Rome. So, who's right? God is. The problem was that these 40 guys thought they were coming after one guy. They didn't realize that these 40 puny guys were coming after the creator of the universe. And they're in big trouble. And watch how God supernaturally uses man to protect him. These guys are coming against him, but God is with them. Jesus promised Paul he would go to Rome, and God never breaks his promise. God is in control. Verse 14. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. The chief priests are the Sadducees, those spiritually dead guys. Verse 15. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So he said, here's the plan. You go up and tell him you want to ask more questions, and when he's walking down here, we'll all jump him and we'll kill him. So they've got this plan in order. 
You know what? Men plan and God laughs. Right? God's in control. And they, they start to make this plan. And watch what happens. I love how God uses a young man here. If you're young, I want to encourage you. God can use you even now. Look at verse 16. So when Paul's sister, so when Paul's sister's son heard of the ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Do you think it was by chance that his nephew was sitting by when they're scheming this plan? Isn't it great how God controls all the details? His nephew's sitting there, and they're going, we're going to go kill Paul, and you bring him down. And, oh. So he goes up and he tells Paul, hey, Paul, you go walking down, and they're going to try to kill you. Look at verse 17. Then Paul called to the centurion and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring you this man to you. He has something to say. And the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? This tells me this, this nephew is probably pretty young. If you're taking someone by the hand, he's not 18. You know, get your hand off of me, you know, right? What are you doing? Let me grab my hand, right? No, but he, he must have been a little guy, you know. Who knows how old he was? Not seven or eight years old. He grabs him by the hand and he pulls him aside. Says, so son, tell me, what, what, do you, what do you have to tell me? This little boy was, was being used mightily by God. Praise God for just his faithful obedience, this young man. And he says there, then the commander took him and, t- and he said, the Jews, verse 20, have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though you were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for a promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed to me these things. God provided for Paul's safety. God knows all, God sees all. St. Augustine said this, Trust the past to God's mercy, trust the present to, to His love, and touch the, trust the future to His providence. The word providence means pro-video, to have seen beforehand. Does God know everything that's going to happen in your life from this moment till the day you die? He knows all of it, doesn't He? He knows everything. Some people struggle with that. I have to admit, it kind of gives me a headache, but I don't struggle with it. I know God can do it because He's God and He's greater than me and that's it. And I'm glad I don't serve a God I can totally figure out. How about you? Right? If I could figure Him out, He wouldn't be God. Right? But He's greater than that. And people say, well, how can He know the future? Does that mean He forces us to make the choice? No. He gives you free will, but He knows what choice you're going to make because He's God. Amen? And He's seen beforehand. And so, I, tell, I used to use this in the youth group. It's like taking a video of a movie you've seen 20 times and watching it again. Are you surprised at how the movie ends? Does it change? No. You know what's coming, right? Well, for the Lord, it's no different. He's seen beforehand. He knows what's coming. He's in control. And so when it comes into your life and you're shocked, don't worry, God's not. Amen? And God will use it for His glory if you will let Him. Say, Lord, what are you doing this in my life for? What's the reason behind this? So we see here this bound evangelist is now going to be sent to Caesarea. He's going to be sent out because they're trying to kill Paul and and God's got another plan for him. God's not through. Verse 23. And he called for two centurions, this is the commander, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Now this is interesting. If Paul had gone out by himself, he would have been dead. God could have smoked the Pharisees, right? And the Sadducees, the the council wanted to kill him. He could have done that. But instead, what does he choose to use? He chooses to use physical things to bring about his will. 
Now these 40 guys, 40 hungry guys, right? 40 hungry guys are sitting out in the bush going, man, I'm hungry, I hope he comes soon, right? And along comes 400 soldiers, two, and look at it says there, this is awesome, 200 elite legionnaires, 70 horsemen, and 200 javelin throwers. These 40 guys are hungry, and Paul's in the middle of a mass, there's just no way. Dude, if we go out there, we're going to get speared, right? So they, they're chapped, right? They got no hope, right? What are we going to do? And here's the good, now I love this because it tells me that God doesn't always just supernaturally open up the sky and transport people. Sometimes he chooses to use the circumstances of life. You've got brain tumor, pray that God will heal you, but he might use a brain surgeon. Amen? Pray that God would heal you, and he may, but he may also use, because sometimes it's the process that teaches us the most. Sometimes you want to just be delivered instantly, and sometimes God says, no, I want you to go through this, that you might be a testimony for me, and it might transform your own faith and your reliance upon me. And so for Paul, God used the physical things, but it was no less God's hand than if he had transported him supernaturally. God is in control. Verse 25. Now he wrote a letter. Now this is interesting. He writes this letter to the governor, and whenever they sent someone for trial, they always had to write a letter to state the charges. Verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. So, to the governor of Judea is whom he is writing this letter and he's supposed to send charges. Verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews, was about to be killed by them, coming with the troops. I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Now, is that accurate? No. Remember what happened? He went in and dragged him out and had him tied to a post and they were just about to whip him. Do you remember? And then Paul said, are you supposed to do this to Romans? And the guy went, what? You're a Roman? Untie him. Right? Because if you did that to a Roman, you could face death yourself. But he, he kind of forgets that part when he's writing to the Roman governor. Right? He didn't want to catch any static. He's like, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I knew he was a Roman, so I went down there and hooked a brother up. I took him out of there. Right? <laughs> Liar. Right? I took care of him. I was watching over him because I knew he was a Roman. I'm a good Roman, so that's not true. Mistaken identity. He, remember what he said to him? Aren't you the Egyptian assassin? Isn't that what he said to him? You're that guy, you're that dirty Egyptian assassin, right? Oh, no. He didn't understand. But, he, but in writing his letter, he's got a different story. Verse 28. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council, and I found out he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had done nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told to me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you, and also commended that his accusers to state before you in charges against him, farewell. One thing that we see Claudius does say is, I can find no wrong in this guy. He's done no wrong. He's not deserving of death. He's not deserving of chains. He's done nothing wrong. He's above reproach. So Paul's moving to another city. Guess what's waiting for him? Another what? Divine appointment. Right? Do you know the rest of the chapter is basically going to be a message worth dying for? Everywhere he goes, he's just going to catch heat. The rest of the, you know, I'm giving the ending away, okay? He's going to catch heat the rest of the book of Acts, and every time he does, he's just going to preach to more people. All right, great, divine appointment. Another opportunity. He's being drug off to another group of people. Another divine appointment awaits him. Verse 31. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antiparis. Now this is 37 miles away, so they were hoofing. 
And if Paul's safety was important, these spearmen are running, and they're, they're hoofing 37 miles in one night. Verse 32. The next day they left the horsemen to go back with them and return to the barracks. And when he came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. So in Caesarea, another divine appointment awaits. And we're going to see that he's going to have an opportunity to stand before another crowd in a couple chapters and just preach the gospel unashamedly. Those of you going to Israel with us, we're going to Caesarea, and we're going to see the very house where Paul stayed, in, well, the ruins of it, where Paul stayed for two years. And I'll tell you what, God's an awesome God because he was going through some difficulty, but I've never seen a more beautiful place on this planet than the place he hung out for two years. He was in Herod's Praetorium, which was basically his house. So he was under house arrest looking out at the Mediterranean Sea, one of the most beautiful places on this planet. And God was watching over him, and God was protecting him, and God was yet to be through with him. Verse 34 and 35, and we're done. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear from you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. Again, the beach house. Send him to the beach house. You know what? Our Lord is a gracious God. He knew Paul had been going through it, right? You know what? Let him go down to the beach house for a while. I want to bless my brother. You know, he's under captivity, but he's house arrest in Felix's house. He ends up being there for about two years because guess what? Some more heat is going to be coming. Paul, the bound evangelist, bound under arrest for the gospel, bound by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. Divine appointments were before him. He was encouraged by Christ. And even when the enemy wanted to kill him, God rescued him and cared for him. Paul truly lived Acts 20, 24, didn't he? None of these things move me. It's easy to say it. It's another thing to live it. Amen? It's one thing to say, Lord, I'm sold out for you. And then an opportunity to witness comes at work and you, you're undercover all of a sudden, right? You ever done that? Bear, am I the only one? You know, Holy Spirit's going, talk to him about me. Have you ever heard that before? And then you go, well, I'm kind of busy. I got stuff to do right now. He won't like me anymore. I haven't memorized the Bible, Lord. Share your testimony, amen? Paul was a man who lived what he said. None of these things moved me. Paul never looked for an easy way out, but he looked for the greatest opportunity to win the loss. He was willing to be stoned, beaten, or become a prisoner if it would further the gospel. Again, he would do whatever it took. May we be daring in the will of God. May we look for Jesus in the midst of the storm and for an opportunity. Let me close with this question. What are you bound to? When you wake up in the morning, what's on your heart and what's your passion? What are you bound to? What are you being led to do? What is the passion of your life? Paul's passion was, I want to see people come to know Jesus. And Lord, whatever it takes, I'll do it. Is our passion for our career? You know what? Do your job as unto the Lord. Christians should be the best workers in the building. But we should be that though, so that God might be glorified through that. Amen? But it shouldn't be the passion of our life. Passion of our life shouldn't... And I, hold on for a second shouldn't even be your kids. You know what? I love my kids so much, it hurts. Parents, you understand what I'm saying? Hurts so much, it hurts. I'm driving down the freeway, I start thinking about my kids, I start crying. Train wreck, okay? I just love them so much, I can hardly stand up. You know what? I'm to love Jesus more. Amen? I'm to love Jesus enough that I'm willing to do whatever it takes to discipline my kids, to teach them the truth. What are we bound to? We bound to our children, we bound to our jobs, we bound to pursuit of money, or are we bound to Christ? It's a message worth dying for, isn't it? And if it is, it should be a message worth living for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word, and we thank you for the example of Paul. 
Though he's an imperfect man, we thank you that empowered by your Holy Spirit, you use him to do great and awesome things. We thank you that the same Holy Spirit that indwelt Paul indwells us today. Lord, I pray that you would give us a burden for the ministries you've given us, the burden for the mission field you've planted us in, like the burden you gave Paul for the Jews. Lord, I pray for each person here that they'd start to pray for their co-workers by name. Lord, you've put them there for a reason. May they start praying for them, for their neighbors. And Lord, for Santa Cruz County, Lord, we want to see revival in Santa Cruz. May it mean Holy Cross once again. May it be a place that isn't looked at as a place where God is reviled and and rejected, but a place where you are glorified, magnified, and lifted up. God, we know you can turn this place right side up. But Lord, may you begin in our hearts. May we have a passion for the lost like Paul had. May we not count our lives dear to ourselves. May we not be moved by our circumstances, Lord, but may we be focused on you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.